It is Christmas in the Glen once more. Our little church nestled in the hills of Metamora, Michigan, has come alive with the festive decorations of the season. Holly and ivy and red and green bedeck the walls and the sills and even the doors. We are reminded that something stupendous and beautiful occurred more than 2,000 years ago, which reaches with its hopeful tentacles to our own day and blesses us today as it did the recipients of long ago. Shepherds in the little town of Bethlehem, just a stone's throw from the Jerusalem capital, were tending their sheep at night when suddenly and without warning we read, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, verse 9 through 11. In haste, they made their way to the stable, indicated by this angelic messenger. We read, So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they were told. Luke 2, verse 16 through 20. What was happening? Why were the shepherds so amazed, so awestruck, so full of praise to God? Was this a new revelation? Was this never broached before in their Jewish scriptures? Had their rabbis never taught them anything about God's coming salvation? Had not the prophet Micah foretold some 730 years earlier? But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Micah 5, verse 2. 700 plus years is a long time to wait when you think about it. Generations came and generations went. Wars were fought and won. And wars were fought and lost. Israel, as in ancient times, was once again subservient to a foreign power. Rome ruled, and they were now under Rome's rule when the child promise was born in Bethlehem. And yet, brethren, delay, delay is a non-entity with God. Time is not his master. Instead, he is the master of time and all of the events in history. This is no less the case here on Shepherd's Hill outside of Bethlehem. Paul explains, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. Now the implementation was new. The implementation. A virgin conceived and brought forth a son. But the concept was old. As old as the prophecy of Isaiah 7, verse 14. No, older still. Older still. By some 50 or more years. When Jonah 
encapsulated in the belly of a great fish for his willful rebellion to God. And as good as dead cried out, Salvation is from the Lord. We are told, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah 2 verse 10. The man doomed to die was given life instead. And that is the message of the gospel. Men doomed to die unto you a Savior is born. And that Savior is the one that emancipates us from the grave, from hell, from death. We want to look at that this morning and begin to consider in what ways salvation is of the Lord. The first way, if you look in your bulletin outline, is this, that it is God alone who saves. People speak of the plan of salvation. And indeed, there is a plan, but alas, it is not the plan that most people envision. Sinners tend to think that they are not so much the recipients of God's plan of salvation, but more His partners in the plan. We hear statements like, God has done all that He can do to save you. Now you must do your part. By which they mean that you, as the sinner, must accept Christ as Savior. God gives the Savior, but you have to Accept Him as such. If you're not saved, then it is because you have rejected the Savior. You have not accepted Him. And I'll have more to say on that later. But for now, I want you to see that the origin, the origin of God's salvation, His plan, demonstrates how erroneous this view of God's plan is. I mentioned earlier that time is not something appropriate in binding God. Time is a creature limitation. You and I had a beginning. God has no beginning. And so when and where was the plan of salvation conceived? Who were the participants? Who were the principles involved? Who laid out the rules, so to speak? Paul writing to Titus says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. And at His appointed season, He brought His word to light, through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Titus 1, verse 1 through 3. Now whatever else this verse teaches us, it states that God's promise of salvation preceded time. And as we read in Galatians 4, verse 4, it came to light in the fullness of time when Mary gave birth to the Savior. You were not there. I was not there. No one was there except God in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So simply put, the plan of salvation, if such language has any meaning, was conceived without human input and counsel. Indeed, does not the Bible state You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and His arm rules for Him. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult 
to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Isaiah 40, verse 9 through 14. And the implied answer to all of these questions is that no one is God's counselor. No one taught him. No one entered into partnership with him. Not then, not now. The plan of salvation was solely that of God, and it preceded time. Again, Paul writes, God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9 and 10. When Jonah confessed, salvation is of the Lord, he surely admitted that the plan of salvation was solely and exclusively God's design. But then secondly, it is God alone who implements his plan. I mean, think about this. What good is a plan without implementation? Is a plan really a plan unless there's follow-through from drawing board to completion, to reality? Isn't it one of the deficiencies of the plans of men that oftentimes what is envisioned cannot or is not brought to fruition because of unforeseen variables. I mean, obstacles may arise which were not anticipated. The plan was too costly, and the money was scarce, or those in authority were too cautious, and so they scrapped the plan. Or the timing wasn't right. We talk about the economic downturn, or war broke out, or unrest in the stock market, and all these things cause men to adjust their plans or to forsake them altogether. Solomon writes it this way, Many are the plans of a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And what is he suggesting there? Men are good planners until some variable arises that they didn't account for, and then they abandon their plans. But God, whatever He plans, <laughs> He prevails. He prevails. Men fail in the implementation of their plans because they are not sovereign over all of the variables which may come against them to frustrate their plans. Chief among these is God's own will, which man's plans often oppose. Let me read it for you from Isaiah. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips. But their hearts, their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness, and they think, well, who sees? Who will know? Isaiah 29 Verse 13 through 15. Well, God sees and God knows and He frustrates their plans. Inserting the plan of salvation, you can be sure that if man were part of the implementation, he would have seen to it that he had a cushy part to play so that he could boast. We want to save ourselves. We resist the idea that God alone 
saves. That we are recipients of grace. Recipients of mercy, which none of us deserve. We resist that. We don't like the idea that we cannot influence God with merit. But the implementation is as much a part of eternity past as the plan of salvation itself. God didn't just, oh, here's my idea. Now I wonder how I'm going to bring this to pass. Well, gee, I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll just throw it out there. I'll broadcast it in terms of announcement. And I'll see what sinners will do with it. Well, I can say to you this morning, if that were God's plan, if that's how it would go down, no one would ever be saved. Never. The natural man, as we find him in nature, says Paul, is hostile to God. He cannot obey God. He will not obey God. Well, if you'll just come and believe, will not obey God. Say, well, you'll, have to change. you'll just have to change your mind. Will not is a decision of the mind. Cannot is a decision of the heart. The nature is such of anything that we're talking about that not, no one, no thing can go against its inherent nature. And if the nature is hostile to God and God's word says that it is, how are you going to get the hostiles to become the friends? Well, let me suggest to you how the implementation is part of God's plan as well as the plan itself. Four elements. Number one, God's plan called for a sinless Savior. Peter calls us that we're redeemed, and he says that we were bought or redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, okay, there's the sinless part, without blemish or defect. Now let's read on. He, this kind of Savior, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. 1 Peter 1, verse 19 and 20. Jesus, God's Son, as Savior, was not an afterthought with God, but chosen before man made his debut on the earth. In other words, God put in place implementation along with the plan. We need a Savior that is sinless, because man is a sinner. We need a representative that will be sinless. Number two. God's plan called for an atoning Savior, a stand-in Savior, one whose death, one whose shed blood could actually pay for sin. So what do we read in the Scripture? John described Jesus as the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8. To say it pointedly, the cross was a done deal in the mind of God before Jesus ever set foot on terra firma. And that's part of implementation. Number three, God's plan called for, and here it is most important for our benefit, God's plan called for recipients among men who were certain, not maybe, not perchance, but were certain to benefit from God's salvation. So we read in the scriptures, in Ephesians 1, In Him, in Christ Jesus, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan 
of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1 verse 11 and 12. Look at the words there. Chosen, predestined, according to God's plan. The recipients he's talking about. Not just the plan to save sinners, but who's going to be saved? Number four. God's plan called for personal salvation. See, what do you mean by personal salvation? I mean by name, on purpose, not by chance. Not just broadcast. Let's see what happens. But people by name. John delineates between those of Satan's kingdom whose, and I'm reading scripture now, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world. Revelation 17 and verse 8. Yeah, the wicked, their names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life since the creation of the world. But the implication is God's people are there. And they are in that book. And they are in that book by name. By name. Now brethren, the glory of God's plan is this. Isaiah says, remember this. Fix it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted. You who are far from righteousness, I am bringing my righteousness near. It's not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. Isaiah 46, verse 8 and following. Do you see any equivocation there? It's God saying, well, you know, I, I hope I can save some people. I hope I can convince some people to come to Christ and to confess their sin and to repent of it and to believe savingly in Him. Now, he doesn't say anything like that. He says, this is my plan, and this is the way it's going to go down. Jesus put it this way to his disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. John 15, verse 16. And earlier, Jesus had taught the crowd at Capernaum, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. John 6, verse 65. He plans the plan. He implements the plan. God is sovereign in that. Now thirdly, God alone sustains his people. Poor Jonah, he's in a bad way. <laughs> in his own words, he says, From inside the fish... Jonah prayed to the Lord is God. Well, yeah, and Doug and I were talking before we came out this morning. It only took him three days to do that. <laughs> Talk about a stubborn guy, right? From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord is God, and he said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I said, I have been banished from your sight. From inside the fish? What's he doing there? God has hurled him into the deep and a monster has swallowed him alive. But he thinks he's a goner. Why has this occurred? 
Chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa. There he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah 1. One to three. What is this? It is this. Jonah is a prophet who refuses to prophesy. He is a preacher of the good news who does not want the hated Ninevites to hear it. He is a man commanded by God who balks at God's command and boards a ship in the opposite direction so that he can flee from the Lord. As if that were possible. And in his insanity, he obviously thought that was possible. In conclusion, Jonah is a child of God. But he is a child of God in rebellion to God. God said go and Jonah said no. Do, do, do. And he not only protested, he did something about it. He ran fast and hard in the opposite direction. Now Jonah is a believer. He is a prophet of God. But he is one who is angry with God. He says so in chapter 4 verse 9. He's willing even to die for his opinion, his cause. And he says that too in chapter 4 and verse 3. But just a few short days before when he was in the belly of the fish, he said, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you. Ah. So when he exclaimed to God that he wanted to die... That was his anger speaking. Aren't you glad that God does not respond to our anger, to our sin? My point here is that if ever there were a believer who deserved to be abandoned by God, it was Jonah. Few examples in the Bible are so blatant, so bold-faced, so rebellious to the clear command of God than Jonah's rejection of his commission and the justification that he gave for it. And he's hanging tough. You read chapter 4. Yes, I have a right to be angry with you, God. He's still duking it out. The whole idea that we are saved by God's grace, but thereafter, thereafter, we're kept by our own goodness or our own obedience is bogus. It's bogus. Man does not make himself spiritually alive, and he cannot keep himself alive. We need grace to take that first step towards Jesus, and we need grace to take every other step thereafter that's going to get us to glory. And guess what? Grace cannot be stockpiled. It is a daily necessity and a daily supply that comes from God. Like the manna in the wilderness, the ancient people of God received enough for the day, for the day, but only for the day. And if they tried to store the manna, it rotted. And it was inedible the next day. Our Lord has taught us to pray, Give us this day our daily bread. Because one must feed on Christ, the living bread, every day to maintain spiritual vitality. I was talking to Ken the other week about his work on the assembly line at General Motors. And the company, he told me, had initiated what they called on-time or, or just-on-time delivery. And that's of the car parts. 
And this saved the, them the expense of stockpiling large inventories. They let the part companies stockpile them, but they didn't have to stockpile them. And so when a red car was coming down the assembly line, a red door was in the pipeline to arrive at just the right moment when the worker needed it to bolt it onto the red car. But if the door was the wrong color, wow, what a mess. The line had to be halted and everyone scrambled to rectify the problem. Let me say that God's grace for living the Christian life is always on time, never early, never late, never a mix-up. Jonah's anger had landed him in the depth of the sea, in the belly of a sea monster, yet he was given the grace to pray to the God from whom he was fleeing. Just think about that, folks. He's trying to run away from God. But when he's hurting, he prays to God. In wonder of wonder, God commanded the fish, and out came Jonah, a little weary for where? But alive and set back on track to do for God what he had been commanded to do. Salvation is of the Lord. God sustains us even when we are faithless, even when we are disobedient, even when we are rebellious children. Listen to the lesson of Jonah. He says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah 2, verse 8 and 9. The point is that only God gives both saving grace and sustaining grace, and your idol can't do that for you. You can be religious and still remain a pagan, estranged from God. But when God sets out to save, He has a plan. He has the implementation of that plan. People come to know Christ, and then when they are rebellious, like Jonah, God still sustains them. By His grace. Jesus could pray and did pray. Of all those whom God has given me, I will lose none. None. That's His sustaining grace. Now what is the outworking of the truth that salvation is of the Lord. Let me suggest some things for you. Number one, this means that any, and I do mean any, any poor sinner can be the subject of saving grace. Salvation being of the Lord means that it is not open to purchase, it is not open to bribery. It is not open to inheritance, nor reward, nor bargaining, nor bidding. No, none of these things. It is solely dependent upon the will of God Himself, by Himself, without regard to your station in life. This is utterly, utterly foreign to the way our society views things. We think, wow. To the victor belongs the spoil. And somehow sinners think they will be the victors. They think that they can win heaven if they just try hard enough to be good enough. The expression comes to mind, well, you know, everyone has his price. And so people bring this mentality to God. And they think, what will it take for God to reserve a spot for me in heaven? I mean, everyone has this price. And this concept is so insulting to God. 
It is blasphemous to think that God's favor can be bought. That God is no better than the money grubbers who peddle their services to the highest bidder. This is the sin of idolatry to which Jonah referred. Men shape God in their own wicked image. You see, sinners would take the bribe and run with it. They would throw open the gates of heaven and say, Come on, come on. But just be sure to drop your gold coins in the treasury by the gate. That is because greed is part of the sinner's nature. They value material wealth at the expense of righteousness. And so they begin to view God as they themselves would conceive Him to be. But what does the scripture say of God? Let me read you. Moses says, Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice, no partiality, or bribery. 2 Chronicles 19, verse 7. Solomon writes, A wicked man accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the course of justice. Proverbs 17, verse 23. So, God would have to be both wicked and unjust to accept a payment from you to enter heaven. Justice demands hell for everyone who opposes God in thought or word or deed. Let me read it to to you from Hebrews. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Well, how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace. Hebrews 10, verse 26 through 29. It is an insult to try to buy what God's grace alone gives as a gift. Insulting grace by reaching for your wallet. Station in life means nothing to God. How much money you have in the bank means nothing. How influential you are with your contemporaries means nothing. How smart, how intellectual means nothing. How connected you are to people in high places means nothing. God's grace has a blind eye to all of these things. God is superior to all of these things. He is not impressed Paul told the Athenians who were Greeks who prided themselves in all of these things here's what he said the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands, and he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Acts 17, 24 and 25. The implication of this is Anything you might give to God, He's already given to you. So how do you think you're going to impress Him with anything you give or do for Him? A different tack was taken by Eliphaz as he spoke to Job 
And here's what he said. Can a man be of benefit to God? Great question. He goes on. Can even a wise man benefit him? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What would He gain if your ways were blameless? Job 22, verse 2 and 3. The implied answer is no one can benefit God. God is the perfection of righteousness. So even if you're blameless and even if you're righteous in your own eyes, you can't match the standard. All the pride of man, all of his strongholds, all his self-help methodology, all of his trust in his own ingenuity is worthless if salvation is of the Lord. The poor are savable, and they are as savable as the rich. The ignorant are as savable as the wise, the nobodies of society, as well as the somebodies. In fact, in fact, God is intent on this. Do we not read? God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, Christ is our righteousness and holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31. No one would devise a salvation like that from among men. Because it takes us from this and reduces us to that. And it takes God, who in the mind of men is this, and exalts Him to where He needs to be. So the first truth is that any poor sinner's can be the subject of saving grace. There's no way sinners can influence God for salvation. There's no way they can say, look at me, over here, over here, and expect that somehow God will be impressed. Secondly, Get this basic truth. Get this basic truth. Salvation is of the Lord. Get that truth in your heart. Believe it. Operate on it. Get that truth and all else will be right. Get it wrong and you will be wrong everywhere else. If you truly believe that salvation is of the Lord you cannot but be sound in the faith. Every heresy, every quirky doctrine of men, every wrong assumption in religion, every misguided spiritual thought or effort is rooted in a wrong understanding of God and His salvation. But conversely, every right thought, every happy thought, every peaceful notion, every comfort in God flows from the firm affirmation that salvation is of the Lord. And let me say that if you believe this, you will not be arrogant and proud. If you believe this, you will not be smug and know-it-all. If you believe this, you will not look down on your brethren, nor think it your task to set everyone straight. You will not fail to be thankful and appreciative and to live life in humble gratitude. The glory is God's and you will wish it to be that way. 
if you believe that salvation is really of the Lord. And again, you will not take sin lightly. You will not see holiness as an unobtainable and therefore useless goal no matter how often you fail. Your dependence on God's grace to save you will look to God's grace to conform you to the image of the Savior, Jesus. And again, if you believe that salvation is of the Lord, your fears will be laid to rest. You will know that your salvation does not depend upon your own fortitude, but on God's faithfulness. Isaiah said it this way, In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter. The nation that keeps faith, you will keep in perfect peace. Him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. Isaiah 26, 1 through 4. Do you see where the emphasis is? You get the concept that salvation is of the Lord. Where do you put your trust? In the rock, the rock, the rock that's eternal. Amen. And then lastly, if salvation is of the Lord, then damnation is of yourself. Here's what your earning power can net you. You cannot buy heaven. But you have plenty with which to buy hell. Like Adam and Eve of old, you have believed the lie of Satan, that you can be your own God and need not listen to any command of the Creator. That even in your deadness towards God, even in your unbelief, God comes to you as He did with Israel of old, and He pleads, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 33, verse 11. I can say it most boldly that every person in hell today is there by their own doing. The blame cannot be laid at God's feet, but squarely on their own shoulders. They committed spiritual suicide. They've killed themselves by following the voice of the prince of darkness. The Apostle John warns, You know, he says to us, that no murderer has eternal life in him. 1 John 3, verse 15. As surely as salvation is of the Lord, murder is of that one whom Jesus labeled a murderer from the beginning. John 8, verse 44. You listen to him and you die. Adam and Eve did. You listen to God and you'll live. Let the wicked forsake his way, says God, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him to our God for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Isaiah 55, verse 7, verse 8. God says if you turn, he'll pardon. If you turn, he'll forgive. Now we wouldn't do that. We hold grudges. We're as sinful in our attitudes towards one another. And then we think, that God might be the same way towards us. But he says, no. Turn, I'll forgive. Turn, I'll pardon. I warn you that your stubbornness, your stubbornness will be your downfall. That stubbornness is from the pit of hell. And it has been the coffin of many a soul. Paul writes, because of your stubbornness 
and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2, verse 5. But God says, Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? Why indeed, when salvation is but a prayer, Lord Christ, salvation is of the Lord. We praise you this morning for that. We are so stubborn. Boy, are we stubborn. We are so hard-hearted. Even the good news of the gospel makes no dent in the armor of our strong will and defiance against all that is good and godly. But Lord... You said through the prophet, Jeremiah, is not my word like a hammer that breaks the hardened rock? And the answer is yes, yes. Lord, come with the hammer of your word and polarize our stubbornness into powder. Make us mush. Soften us. Make us pliable. Give us a heart to hear the invitation, why will you die? Why indeed? Turn, turn, for you take no delight in the death of the wicked. I pray for every lost soul here this morning. I pray for those listening by way of radio or by television. And I ask, Lord, that you would work in their hearts, that today might be their day of salvation, and that if they hear your voice, that they will not harden their heart any more than they've already done all these many years, but today that they might have a soft heart, a fleshly heart, a heart that beats after the will of God. Lord, draw them by your Holy Spirit into saving grace. Grant them the repentance they do not have and the faith they do not have, that they might be drawn into your kingdom for your honor and your glory. We pray these things. Amen.